Pauline Tesler, welcome to the New School. Thank you, Michael. It's such a pleasure to be here. You are the director of the brand new Integrative Law Institute uh, at, at uh, Commonweal. And um, you, you bring to this work uh, an extraordinary history as a specialist in family law and uh, a, uh, a founder of the national slash international organization that works in this field. And uh, if you were not the founder of uh, this field of uh, collaborative law practice, you were certainly one of the early and leading apostles of it and, um, and are recognized across the country for that. Um, you've, you've done a truly extraordinary book. Um, I'm a book person. And so um, when I say a truly extraordinary book, I mean a truly extraordinary book. It's called Collaborative Divorce, The Revolutionary New Way to Restructure Your Family, Resolve Legal Issues, and Move On With Your Life. And there are, are back page quotes on this. Uh, an old friend of mine, Robert Manukin, who is a professor at Harvard Law School and wrote Beyond Winning, uh, says, this practical book should be assigned reading for every divorcing spouse. It describes the advantages of a revolutionary idea whose time has come. Hire professionals with a collaborative orientation and the process of divorce will be less painful and will lay the foundation for better long-term results. And there's also a lovely quote from Jean Shinoda Bolan, professor of psychiatry and a friend and colleague of all of us, uh, and a wonderful quote from Thomas Lewis, also a professor of psychiatry at UCSF and author of A General Theory of Love. Judith Wallerstein, who did a great deal of wonderful work on on divorces uh, also commented on it. So uh, this book, uh, among a, uh, a national community of people who really think about it, uh, has been kind of uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, Bible, almost, of, of collaborative uh, divorce. So I, I want to, for our listeners, because uh, many people listen to the podcast from the New School, I think it's worthwhile to focus on your work on collaborative divorce and then take a little time to extend it in all the directions in which collaborative law can take. But uh, let's just start with collaborative divorce. Uh, imagine you're at a cocktail party. Uh, somebody comes up to you and says, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. I hear you're a collaborative divorce lawyer. What's the story? And what do you say? I'd first find out a little bit about you, and my response would be tailored to what I imagine your worries and concerns and hopes might be in your own situation. So knowing you, Michael, or a little bit about you, not that you're thinking about divorce, mm -hmm. but in your situation, I might say, this is a method of handling a normal life transition in a way that normalizes it for the entire family and looks out for a good outcome for everybody. It's a civilized, respectful, and even a spiritual way to go about what some people regard as sacred terrain. Now, I probably wouldn't say that to everybody, but to you I might say mm -hmm. that. And one of the things you point out in this book is 50, about half of American marriages end in divorce. Yeah, yeah, and that statistic doesn't vary very far from that. The non-marital relationships, of which there are now more, <laughs> there are marriages mm -hmm. for, for the generations that mm -hmm. are now forming relationships. Mm -hmm. They break up, break up at an even higher rate. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing enormous percentages of children now being raised in households that are not including both of their biological mm -hmm. parents. 
And it's so striking when, when you know, I was thinking this morning as, as your Integrative Law Institute joins the Commonweal community, I was thinking, you know, what the Commonweal community is, is a group of people who are focused on a cluster of great questions about what matters. So for example, early example, we don't think it's a brilliant idea that at-risk children with learning disabilities are put in penal institutions at the cost of a Harvard education in order to help them grow up, as one example. We don't think it's a super good idea that people with cancer, all the focus is on their medical treatment and none on the emotional, mental, and spiritual dimensions of healing. We don't think it's a fabulous idea that at the end of life, uh, people go through all kinds of procedures at enormous expense, bankrupting their families and bankrupting the medical system, when if you had a good conversation about end-of-life issues, people would have higher quality of death and, uh, and the cost would be infinitely lower. You know, we don't think it's a great idea that the medical profession, Rachel Naomi Remen's work, uh, focuses entirely on high-tech treatments and that the physicians and health professionals lose the reason they went into this work, which was to help people heal. So as I just reflected more deeply on it, uh, you know, your work fits so beautifully into that framework and because it isn't a fabulous idea that when half of Americans divorce, that the, the process is entirely adversarial, bankrupts the families, and destroys their capacity to co-parent in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the many examples of, of what Commonweal has focused on historically do fit beautifully because um, since I first began doing this work, I've understood it to be reclaiming the, the primacy of relationship and community. That a divorce is a normal human experience mm -hmm. um, in this culture, and that we need to reclaim a primacy for the relationships that are involved, the human relationships that are going to survive mm -hmm. that, that, that restructuring into two households where there were one. And the institution that's been assigned responsibility for handling it, nobody who was giving 10 minutes thought to where and how you'd like to help a family restructure so that they can parent children would stick them in a courtroom that if it was designed for anything, and that's a different conversation, but if it was designed to do anything well, it's fender benders. Um, encount or Microsoft versus Google. Encounters between people who have no particular connection pre-existing the conflict and for whom maintaining a relationship afterward might not be high on their priorities. But in this instance, if we can't help people get a restructuring of their family relationships, we can't raise the next generation. Mm -hmm. And the consequences are catastrophic of seeing after World War II when divorce became freely available and gradually morphed into no-fault divorce, we're seeing the consequences now in our culture of handling divorces badly in the wrong institution and in the wrong frame. We're seeing kids who have been raised by nobody and who don't know how to form intimate relationships that are deep and lasting. And although there are a lot of places in the culture that you can look at for how we might go about reclaiming the ability to parent children throughout our lifetimes, one of the places is divorce. Hmm. And that's what collaborative divorce is about. You have a wonderful quote in here, I think from a senior family court person saying, uh, family courts are where they shoot the survivors. Right. 
That was said by one of the best family law judges that has ever sat on the bench in California. He reformed the courts in San Francisco. He insisted on having mediation of custody disputes before people could go in front of the judges. And that was his conclusion after a career in, in the courts as best he could make them, is that's where they shoot the survivors. Another judge who, again, is, is a great judge doing the best he can here in Marin County, Henry Broderick, who was one of the first judges I ever practiced in front of, he used to start his morning calendar, the divorce calendar. And if you want to see something horrible, an institutional disconnect between the needs of people and what the culture is providing, go sometime to the Marin Civic Center and watch the morning law and motion calendar for divorces. He knew he could do nothing good. There would be perhaps 30 or 40 couples there with problems, and he'd have two hours on his morning calendar. So it was a zoo. And he would introduce his calendar by saying, if anybody leaves this courtroom happy, I've made a dreadful mistake. Now, I was horrified as a young lawyer the first time I heard that, because I came to family law as a public interest lawyer who was on the white horse and wanting to do justice and have victories. And here he was saying that Nobody should come out of his courtroom happy. And it took me a full career as a litigator to understand what he was talking about, which is that was his way of saying, this is, this is the wrong place for you folks. You don't belong here. If I make the mistake of thinking that one of you is the hero and one of you is the villain, I have made a bad mistake. One of my favorite um, family law colleagues, now deceased, put it this way, Snow White rarely marries Hitler. <laughs> and that's the truth. Judges are there to find out the winner and the loser, the good person and the bad person, the perpetrator of an offense, allocate consequences. That shouldn't be happening in a divorce. It's such a deep issue. Um, I went through a divorce, and my, and my first wife and I managed to handle it well and without, you know, acrimony. Um, but even in the best circumstance, um, as you say in the book, even a well-handled divorce is like a death in the family. It's just, it's a terrible, horrible process. Even just, and as you say in the book also, just because it's the death of a dream, that when you married, you had a dream, at least most of us do, that you would spend the rest of your lives together, you know? And we had a child. Um, and as you say here, even children of divorce who feel it was well handled feel they were scarred by it forever. You know? There's no avoiding that. Yeah. For children, even, even children who are doing reasonably well and even parents are doing really the best that they can, um, it's like the end of the known universe for mm -hmm. children. Mm -hmm. um, and when clients come to me and say that their children are doing fine, that's when I worry most mm -hmm. because... No child is doing fine. And what that means is that those kids are talking to nobody about what's happening in their lives. In, you mentioned um, that it's like a death. Uh, in the mental health professions, um, some psychologists have made a career out of doing what they call um, life trauma stress indexes. Um, and they assign numeric values to all of the awful things that we can expect might happen in our lives. And it used to be that the death of a spouse was at the top of the list as the most stressful and traumatic 
experience that a human being could go through. But now um, it's divorce. Mm. Divorce is now understood to be more stressful even than that. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, don't, I don't mean to joke about it or be cynical when I say, because some people have made this joke, that the difference is that your ex is alive mm -hmm. when you divorce. And so you have to find a way mm -hmm. to keep functioning with one another when it didn't work, when the dream died. And particularly when you have children. Particularly when you yeah. have children. Yeah. One of my colleagues that I do very good collaborative work with, if we have the right couple who's interested in a self-reflective and particularly high-intentioned way of going about divorce, he will sometimes ask his client and sometimes both clients when we're at a collaborative meeting if they would be interested in doing a short visualization. And what he asks them to do is to close their eyes, you know, do all of the relaxing things, deep breaths and so forth, and then to remember when it was that they first decided to marry and to take themselves back to remembering what it was like when they made that decision to go with the dream and the hope that they'd spend their lives together. And then he says, if you will, I'd like you to to think about this, never ever in your dreams at that time would you have imagined that you'd be sitting at this table with me having a conversation about divorce. But try to imagine back then that you did have a conversation about how you'd behave toward one another if the unthinkable happened and this relationship wasn't forever. What promises would you have made to one another about how you would treat one another if that happened? Because that's what we hope you're going to sign on for when we do a collaborative divorce. You know, it's funny you mention that because uh, um, I've been uh, taping some conversations with my colleague, Rachel Naomi Remen, who directs the Institute for the Study of Health and Illness, does our work with physicians and health professionals. And you've mentioned uh, that you see that work as a kind of a model for what you hope to do with the legal profession. Very much so. But Rachel was reminding me, and I remember this very well, that uh, we were driving over from Mill Valley toward Commonweal and discussing planning to work together to create a cancer help program. And, and as we drove, I was driving and she was next to me, and as we drove, I said to her, now Rachel, if we decide to work together, one of the things I hope at the start is that we will be conscious that if the time comes that we're, we end working together, that we'll set the hope that we, be, we end it with the same dignity and purpose that we're starting this with. Because it's so easy to get excited at the start, and, you know, at the end it's often so difficult. And, you know, Rachel just teases me endlessly that I did that. But for years, actually, when I was hiring staff, I would say that to people coming in. It's so easy to be enthusiastic when you come here, but in fact, it's a community of human beings, and you know we have all our struggles, and let's at least make a commitment at the end that when the time comes to leave, that instead of putting it off, if you know the time is coming to leave, let's plan to do it in a way that is at least civil, hopefully kind, and has some dignity for all of us. Now, I've stopped doing that, but as I read your book, <laughs> I thought to myself, <clears throat> and you don't mention this in the book, so here's my contribution to your thinking. I think that um, people should consider prenuptials in which the possibility of divorce and how it will be handled is part of the agreement. It's not just a financial agreement. It's like... We hope never to divorce, but if that day comes, 
can we set a set of expectations for ourselves about how we would do that? I mean, I can imagine couples marrying being handed this book and say, look, you know, reflect on this. Because really, you talk about in here how marriage is romanticized and divorce is demonized in our culture. And you talk about the research literature that shows that if you demonize something, that your decisions about it will not be as good. You know, so there's this right. intense romanticism about marrying, and then there's demonization and guilt, shame, and so forth about the divorce process, which leads to anger and all the rest. If we weren't so romantic about the marrying process, and if we were not so demonizing about the divorce process, we would be a healthier culture. And if it was part of the conversation about getting together, about, okay, we hope this lasts forever, but life changes in the event that it doesn't work, how do we part? It would be a healthier culture. Well, in fact, you've leapt to right where the collaborative divorce movement is at this point about prenuptial agreements. When I have the good fortune to do a prenuptial agreement where the other lawyer is a collaborative lawyer, we do have this conversation. Uh -huh. And we build into the prenuptial agreements, just as you've suggested. Mm -hmm. We build in, I don't think I've had the values conversation but there's no reason why I shouldn't. It's a good mm -hmm. idea. But what we do do is build in actually a binding agreement that if it should come to divorce, this is how it's going to be done. It's mm -hmm. going to be done collaboratively. And um, one of the features of collaborative divorce, as you know, because you read the book, mm -hmm. um, is that the lawyers and their clients sign a binding agreement that the lawyers may never go to court and nobody can threaten to go to court as a tool for negotiating. So we build that in at the front end in the prenuptial agreements. And we hope that it causes people to think about it. I, one of my clients whose divorce I handled before I was a collaborative lawyer wasn't a great experience for him or me or anybody. Uh, they did reach a settlement agreement because it's not really well known, but about 90 to 95% of all divorces reach a settlement agreement. It's just how much carnage and expense you go through if you do it the old-fashioned way. But anyway, this client was divorced, and then he decided he was going to remarry, and he wanted a prenuptial agreement, which was wise. And I suggested to him, because I was now doing collaborative law, that we should do it collaboratively. And that meant all sitting around the table and having a conversation about expectations for the marriage and what the real concerns were that were leading both of them to want a prenuptial agreement. He was really not happy about this idea because his, the idea of lawyers at all, mm -hmm. given his divorce, wasn't a happy thought. But he trusted me, and so we did do it. And as it happened, his wife retained the man I mentioned who does the visualization about how will we handle ourselves if this marriage ends. So we did do that. And the conversations became very deep. It turned out that um, he was much older than his fiancée. He was really frightened that he would be an old man in poor health with money. She would be a young, beautiful woman. And why would she want to stay with him? Would he have a companion in his old age? So we had a lot of talk about that and about his fear of having children, which he didn't think he wanted to do. She did. They talked about those things as part of the prenuptial process. And we didn't write agreements in necessarily about all of that. But at the end of it, he had the biggest smile on his face. And he said, among the other things that he said, he said, this was so interesting. I never imagined this was what it would be like. 
he was just delighted. It was the best experience he had had in connection with ending the old vision of marriage and embracing a new one. One of the things you do in the, in the field of collaborative law and collaborative divorce specifically is that you bring all the science that has emerged about how human beings make decisions. You bring anthropology, you bring uh, neurobiology, you bring history, you bring a whole set of disciplines that you've really studied to the table and you talk about how poor the fit is between what the science is about how human beings actually behave and make decisions and this adversarial process in the courts. Yeah, and it was through struggling to become a collaborative lawyer that I realized that, well, I have to back up a little bit because one thing that happens to really to all litigating lawyers and especially to family lawyers is that you can't survive in that world in which they shoot the survivors unless you build a very strong armor against anything that matters to you personally because you have to do awful things in order to be a litigator in the court system and especially when you're dealing with families. When lawyers who are doing that work reach mid-career there is often a crisis of one kind or another. For many of us, we think that we can't continue to be a lawyer. That was really what I was struggling with when I hit that wall. For some lawyers, um, they start drinking um, and have serious substance abuse issues. It's because we don't like getting up in the morning, <clears throat> looking in the mirror, and thinking about what the job description entails. So when collaborative law first came down the pike, all it was was two lawyers. And the deal was a binding agreement that we couldn't go to court. We thought that was all it was going to be about. How wonderful not to go to court. But of course, that's when everything started to happen. That's when the learning began. Because all that I knew, all that any of us knew from law school and, and on-the-job training, was how to jockey for position in front of a judge and how to do a better job of persuading the other side that we had a better case and that they'd better not dare go in front of a judge. And none of that was of the slightest use once you took away courts from the picture. So what were we going to do the day after we discovered collaborative law? Nobody had thought about that. And what happened was a very steep learning curve in which Many of the people who first became interested in collaborative divorce work as lawyers peeled off because there was no fit between what they knew and what they had to accomplish. If we could not, one of my first collaborative clients, who was a doctor who had had a lot of bad experience with litigation, he was so thrilled after our first collaborative meeting, he was practically jumping up and down. He said, this is so neat, this is so neat. If you guys can't get us from here to there, you're out of a job. This is wonderful. <laughs> and he was right. So we had to figure out how not to be out of a job on our cases. How do we in fact get from here to a solution that everybody at the table is going to embrace without threats and without using the power tools that every lawyer is taught? So that's really when it got interesting. Because in a personal sense for me, having the cast of mind that I do, what started happening was I could almost feel that armor becoming a permeable membrane. So that I gradually started to understand that everything that was of interest to me in my personal life and that I thought could make me a better 
person in my personal life, and you know, having come of age in the 60s, that was a pretty wide universe. Um, I started to see that every bit of that was relevant in my work now at the table because I was working in a human system in which it wasn't just about those people called clients who had those problems called legal issues. It was about a human system of professionals meeting a human system, which was a family, and trying to help them become a functional two-household family. So everything that I thought I knew or could learn about being a better human being became relevant at the table. And that meant history, anthropology, neuroscience, positive psychology, apology and forgiveness, all of that ever-expanding universe of human potential and positive psychology tools that we know make us happier as human beings. They work at the table. That's what makes the model work. Well, of course, much as I might want to master all of those disciplines, I'm just one person, and by cast of mind, I am a lawyer. You know, I really like getting to solutions. I'm a problem solver by temperament. Um, and it soon became apparent to me that more people were needed at the table who had other skills. Um, my favorite human potential psychologist, Abraham Maslow, very famously said, if the only tool that you have is a hammer, all problems tend to resemble nails. And even as good as I was trying to become at a kind of systems-based, integrative, problem-solving mode, and I think I'm pretty good at it, I will never be a psychologist, a mental health professional. I am not a financial consultant or financial planner. All of those things are needs that every divorcing couple has. They need better communication skills because people who are getting divorced don't tend to be at their top form about communicating. Um, whether you have a lot of money or a little, a lot of assets are not very many, there's going to be a restructuring. And being able to do financial planning, rather than having a judge use a meat cleaver on it, everybody benefits from so that's how we came to understand that we needed to work as a team. And so let's talk about the team for a minute. Sure. So as I understand, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, each person gets their own lawyer, uh, and, uh, and each person gets their own coach. And then there is a shared, this is the full-staffed version, then yeah. there is a shared financial planner, finance person, and if they're children, there's a child specialist. Correct. That's the full... That's but you don't have to have them all. Correct. And you can start either with the coaches and then bring in the lawyers, or you can start with the lawyers and then talk about what other team members you have. That's the basic deal. That's right. And actually, it's kind of funny. Human beings are... We're all very funny. What we, what we discovered is that the people who start with lawyers first tend to be a little bit aversive about mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. And the people who start with the coaches first tend to be a little bit aversive about lawyers. And so we bring up that, that other professional side that they may be a little bit reluctant mm -hmm. to, to consult. Mm -hmm. And we present it in a way that most people find right. pretty palatable. And then one of the things, I mean, you've really, it's one thing, I mean, for almost anybody, the idea of collaborative divorce Sounds like a no-brainer. Of course, you'd want to do this, except uh, for litigating lawyers. Except for litigating <laughs> lawyers. Okay, but but for any for any um, how shall I say this? For any uh, <laughs> I'm waiting for you to finish. For this any sentence. any uh, 
anyone in a marriage who has the interests of their marriage and children in mind, this would probably be uh, the preferred approach. Absolutely. But what's really striking is it's one thing to think it's a no-brainer and, okay, why do we need this team to do this, right? Uh, it, it's another thing to drill down, as you so clearly have, into everything it takes in a complex modern world for two people to go through such a painful process when, as you point out, they're making decisions that are going to affect the rest of their lives and they are in the worst possible place to make it. They're under huge stress. They may not recognize themselves. They may have been thoughtful, kind human beings and they discover these levels of rage or you know, depression or whatever it is and they're being asked to make these incredible decisions that are going to affect the rest of their lives. At times when, when, from a neurobiological perspective, they literally can't think. Right. Because that is, that is neurobiologically one of the things that happens when we're feeling any kind of strong emotion. Right. Is that we go down into the older sections of the brain. Right. And we're supposed to. That's a survival tool. Right. And we can't do long-range planning. Right. Diminished so, capacity in the, in the true sense of the word. That's right, and I have used that phrase. I, I wrote a book for lawyers that the ABA published mm -hmm. called Collaborative Law. And in it, um, well, I wrote it way back when this model was first starting. And I used a phrase which I really like. I called it transient diminished capacity. Mm -hmm. Well, you should have seen the agitation in the legal profession. The term diminished capacity is hard enough to get judges and lawyers to listen to when you're talking about criminal culpability. Um, you know, the Twinkie defense, mm -hmm. you know, that. Yeah. But when you're talking about ordinary people and you talk about diminished capacity, this is a serious problem um, and one that I do a lot of training about. But how does a lawyer do the job of making sure that everybody's making fully informed decisions when much of the time that we're working with them, they literally can't think from point A to point B? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to help people make rational decisions? You know, one of the things... One of the many things I learned in this book, because it was a deep learning process um, from going to, oh, I know what this is about, you know, collaborative divorce, sure. sure. But one of the many things I learned, which I think would be very persuasive to anybody who, who considered an adversarial divorce, is your point about what happens to the records of a adversarial divorce. Would you say a word about that? Well, in California and in most other states, not all, but most, um, court records are public records. And anybody, including your children, can go down to the courthouse and look at what mommy's divorce looked like. Who said what about whom? And, of course, now that we're in the, um, the Internet age, many states are now putting all of those records online so that um, anybody, anybody can find out all of the accusations that you made about one another when you were at your very worst low ebb and um, not thinking straight at all. And in a highly adversarial situation. In where a highly the attorneys adversarial. are bringing out the worst possible things and all of this is online for eternity. All you know. online for eternity. And lawyers are taught to do this in law school because the, the, the notion is that it's all aiming for a judge, potentially. There is, there is this notion that's taught in trial practice courts that the best and most responsible way that a lawyer can make sure that their client will get the best possible settlement, always defined in dollar signs, the, the best way to do that is to prepare aggressively for trial. Well... 
in a courtroom, if you have the misfortune to actually have a trial, they don't happen very much anymore. It's called the vanishing trial. But if you do go actually before that judge for whom everything is being planned in the preparation, the judges, even principled and, and very well-intentioned judges in our public courts, don't have enough time to deal with the dockets that they have. So whether they want to or not, their main agenda is for you to get out of their courtroom fast. So um, in order to make an effective pitch as a trial lawyer, the way it was taught to me in my trial practice class was that if your argument isn't something that you can make to a judge who isn't listening while standing on one foot with one breath, it's too complicated. That means that the job of a traditional lawyer is to take these complex, anguished human narratives and pare away everything except what paints the other person in the worst possible light. Now, let me ask you a question. If it doesn't go to trial and it just goes before the judge, are those records public records also once it goes before the judge, or does it only become a public record if it goes to trial? You mean, in what sense, to go before a judge? Well, in other words... Uh, the answer is yes, but I'm curious what you mean by go before okay. a judge. Uh, maybe I was making a distinction without a difference. I was thinking that... Uh, okay, I was thinking that going before a judge was not necessarily the same as a trial, but I guess it is the same as a it trial. It is, yeah. We don't okay. have jury trials of in course. family All law right. here, although they do in Texas. <laughs> yeah, they have okay. jury trials. They okay. put little yeah, kitties okay. on to testify. So once you go before a judge, everything's public record. Even if you don't. If you file a divorce petition, that's mm. public record. If you file a motion for custody mm. or support or whatever, which is, mm -hmm. that's where all of the action is in divorce practice. Mm -hmm. It's all pretrial motions. That's where everybody makes the nasty accusations. And that, that becomes public record. That's all record. public record as soon as it's filed. It's all I open. just can't imagine why there, given that information, I can't imagine why people do adversarial divorces. Their lawyers don't tell them this. Yeah. Because it really doesn't register on the radar screen. It's not that the, the litigators, most of them are not bad people. There are some who are bad people, mm -hmm. but most of them are not. Um, I'd like to think I was not a bad person mm -hmm. when I was mm -hmm. a litigator. But that's the institution you're working in. Those are the constraints. That's how it works. Now, one thing that happened early in our conversations about creating an integrative law institute at Commonweal uh, under your direction. Uh, and I was listening to the history of the development of the collaborative law movement. And I said to you, Pauline, does this have anything to, does the fact that this is growing have anything to do with the growing number of women who have entered the legal profession? And you smiled and said something like, what? Well, I think it has everything to it do has with everything it. To do with it. But, but a second thing that I didn't say, but is an interesting historical perspective, is that this whole trajectory about divorce is playing out against the uh, two or three millennia of history of the changing status of women in society. So obviously women in many societies were property for a long time, had no rights. Until and remarkably recently. Until you would be surprised exactly, to know how recently. Exactly. And, and therefore, not only do we have the trajectory of women uh, becoming a real force in the legal profession and many women being leaders in the collaborative uh, law movement, but we have the fact that, um, as you point out in the book, that it's only uh, 
that, that divorce was deeply demonized in, in law itself for a long time. So there's, there's this huge transition in consciousness that has everything to do with the empowerment of women and the, um, and the new role of women in redefining legal practice. That's, that's how it's played out. I think we had a convergence of forces um, during and after World War II that had a tremendous impact on our notions about marriage and families. That's when the, the unrooted nuclear family got created. We've got industrialization forces. We have the rootlessness that happened during and after the war. And um, it's out of that that no-fault divorce emerged in the early 70s here in California. Once we had no-fault divorce, and that's really a misnomer, um, it makes you think when you hear that phrase that that means a nice, civilized, non-adversarial divorce, but that's not it at all. It just means there are certain kinds of nasty evidence that you're not allowed to present anymore. You can't present evidence about who slept with whom when. That's all no-fault divorce means. There isn't a guilty party officially in a no-fault divorce. So people simply fight about what they're allowed to fight about. The children, the lamps, the silver, the 401k, whatever's there. If you have a nasty divorce, that's where it goes. I lost my train of thought. So we were talking about, yeah, about women yeah. and the changing notions of marriage. Mm. Certainly after World War II, during the war, women had the experience of being major players in the workforce and then were expected to go back home when the men came back home. Out of that ferment, we got no-fault divorce because people were tired of having to lie about family breakdown. Women had a lot more independence de facto at that point. But women weren't in charge of the legal profession in any sense. The women's movement began in the early 60s. And um, I think what we saw first after no-fault divorce was a bit more of the Hugh Hefner playboy kind of motivation. Oh boy, we all get to sleep with whoever we want, wherever we want, and if we get tired of it, well, we can just get divorced. And simultaneously at that time, there were some, I think, rather naive notions about child rearing associated with the early days of the women's movement. I shared them. I thought, well, you know, if the parents are happy and they're making a good life for themselves, kids are resilient. They can, they can manage with almost anything. Better that the parents should be happy. We've gotten a little bit more nuanced since then, and we know that it's not that easy for any of us. So I think that's where the unique contribution of women has come in, because I think women, historically, for obvious reasons that have been written about by people more attuned to it than I am, that, that, that we are more attuned to relationships. We've had to be, being in a disadvantaged role for so many millennia. And, and that speaks to another thing that you make very explicit in, in uh, collaborative divorce, um, which is the... Uh, the difference between, I forget your exact language, but the external estate and your internal estate. Yeah. It's a um, lovely, maybe I don't have the language right, but it's a lovely concept. The, the, the phrasing that I used when I first started writing about that, mm -hmm. and it, it, it was so obviously what was different about how we were going about collaborative divorces, is that traditional divorce, traditional law, in, in, in the family context, deals only with what's measurable, quantifiable, and divisible. It's, it's, it's the, um, I don't even remember what I call it, it's the outer estate, the external mm -hmm. estate, mm -hmm. the measurable estate. Mm -hmm. 
but that what we started to pay attention to once we were no longer focused on a judge, but rather focused on helping people figure out priorities and solutions, was that there's an entire inner or relational estate, which traditional divorce practice simply savages by not paying attention to it. The lawyer's traditional job is to abstract out those things which a judge can make orders about. Judges can only make orders about stuff, money, property. So if you ask a client coming in who's upset about the collapse of their marriage, it's a, a client may talk to a lawyer about the money because they watch television and they have the, the common notion of what a divorce is about, is fighting about the money, but those are just markers. If you have a deeper conversation about what people are really worried about at three in the morning and what they dare to hope about when they're being most hopeful about the divorce process, it's always about relationships. Mm -hmm. It's always about what is my life going to be like with those I care about after this is over with. And sometimes money, often money plays a role in it. You want to be able to live in a neighborhood where the schools are good and where your friends and the children's friends are. But it isn't about the money. It's about the life that's made possible by the money. And if we start focusing on those human and relational values, that's one of the ways to help people reach high for what kind of divorce they want to have. Whereas a traditional lawyer brokers a deal without the clients even there and is always going for that last 500 or 1,000 or $500,000. That's how they think they're doing a better job. That's how they know they did well. And the consequences in terms of that interrelational estate are disastrous. So if we start out by helping our clients see the interplay between those things that we can write a settlement agreement about and how they relate to those, those inner and relational values that really are what's driving the train, then we have really different conversations during the negotiations. Mostly it's about relationships, but it's also about personal integrity. Couples who don't have children or whose children are long since grown and up and out, the conversation tends to be more like, when you look back on this phase of your life, how do you want to think about yourself and how you behaved? Yes, you were dealt a rotten hand. Yes, this isn't what you wanted. Now, how do you want to look back on your own behavior as you, as you move through this passage that you didn't choose? When we, when we have those conversations and issue those invitations, in my experience, people always respond and they respond with relief. But those conversations don't happen in a traditional lawyer's office because they don't have anything to offer. You know, it reminds me so much of, of the work we do in the Cancer Help Program and the, the core, you know, vision of, uh, of Jung's, Carl Jung's archetype of the wounded healer and how, uh, as Rachel Remen puts it, the, the wound is not only a wound, but it's an opening. And the beautiful quote from Dame Edith Sitwell about William Blake, he was cracked, but it was through the crack that the light came. You know, That's and that sense that a wound can be an opening. And so here's this tremendous wound that takes place. And the question is, um, the pain will be enormous, uh, but can it be seen, can it be experienced uh, as something through which the light can come? That's really right on, on, on point about 
what the, this team approach can can bring. Not that lawyers couldn't, in theory, do it ourselves, but but when we have this team and resource, and especially mental health professionals working as coaches, when I train lawyers about this, which I do a lot, um, the way that I describe it, because not everybody um, is always open at first to more spiritual conversations about it, I use Maslow's hierarchy of needs, in which um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but Very it, it's a triangle, a pyramid, mm -hmm. in which the bottom level is the most basic needs. The survival needs. Survival needs, food, yeah. shelter, and clothing. And Maslow postulated that across all cultures, humans have a hierarchy of needs and that it's kind of universal. And that you have to satisfy the lowest level need and then the next level need before you can begin to work up toward the highest level needs. Which he called peak experiences. Peak experiences, human potential. He was... Did you know that Maslow uh, believed that there was no distinction between peak experiences and mystical experiences, and he only used the word peak because that was accessible to the psychological profession at that time? Exactly. Yeah. I'm not surprised in the least. Yeah. That's why I can use his hierarchy, even right. though I'd rather be talking about right. Blake and, and, and cracking open right. for the light. But this is a very accessible way of talking right. about spiritual values and aspirations, aspiring high at a time of great pain. Anybody can understand this. And so it's a really nice teaching tool because we can talk with clients or lawyers or judges or anybody about how the courts can only deal with that bottom tier of survival needs, food, shelter, and clothing. The next level up is safety. Judges can issue domestic violence restraining orders, but we all know they're not self-enforcing and people die even when there are such orders in place. So judges and courts are not very good at the safety level. You get beyond that to love. In fact, they exacerbate the safety issues by tearing everybody apart. Exactly and right. And creating rage, which in fact makes the safety issues more real. Exactly right. And, you know, it's very short-sighted. Lawyers and judges tend to look only at pieces of paper. A divorce begins with a petition and ends with a judgment because that's when the lawyers work and the judges work begin and end. I've never had a client who would answer the question, when did your divorce begin, by referring to a piece of paper. We're talking about a much longer human trajectory, and that's one of the beauties of the team model, is we remain available for a much longer time, potentially, because research has established pretty clearly that the most stressful time for a restructuring family isn't between separation and the divorce judgment. It's what happens afterward for the next 18 months to two or three years because that's when new relationships happen, marriages, blended families, moveaways. Um, so when we have this team resource available, we can respond and be on tap with already all of this familiarity and relationship with the family to deal with the changes that are inevitable. And we while courts look at change as a bad thing, they want all of the orders to be written in stone, and you have to work really hard to get a judge ever to change child support or child custody, for example. We build into our settlement agreements the expectation. Seems so obvious, doesn't it? Change is normal. Duh. So we build into the agreement. There are going to be a lot of changes that are going to happen with your family, even if things go beautifully and there aren't any speed bumps. Your kids are going to get older. That's a change. Needs are going to change. So let's assume that you're going to have to come back and that we can talk about those things before they come pro become problems. This is like the polar opposite of how the institutionalized legal system deals with those obvious realities. You know, it's also occurred to me, we, you talked about 
how you're being asked to make lifelong decisions, decisions that will affect the rest of your life at the worst possible time to make it. But in a funny way, there's the analogous point from psychobiology at the beginning of marriages, which is that uh, when one is head over heels in love and making a set of decisions, that may not be the best possible time to make lifelong decisions. <laughs> Absolutely either. not. But yeah. nature will have its way. Nature will have its way. <laughs> but the, the point about that is that, uh, and there's a wonderful woman, a professor at Columbia, I'm blocking on her name, who, who's written about the psychobiology of love. But I think, and maybe you can help me with this, but my memory is that it typically lasts about two and a half years, that period of intense uh, infatuation, and that at the end of two and a half, three years, which happens to be the amount of time that it takes to get pregnant, have a baby, yeah, and baby. raise and the child, and get it walking, <laughs> right? And then, then you wake up one morning, often, not always, some people manage to keep this going forever, but uh, you wake up one morning, and here you are with this uh, other human being, who hopefully you like, you know, and hopefully there are many things that you have together that can build into love as opposed to in, you know, head over heels in love. But it, it's just interesting that the, the psychobiology of partnership and when you're making lifelong decisions has its, its corollary at the beginning as well as the end of marriage. That's absolutely right, and, and you know, divorce lawyers who do I'm not sure if it's cynicism or just seeing patterns. It's somewhere between the two, I guess. But um, there are the divorces that happen after five, six, or seven years. Those are the ones where they've hit that end of one set of psychobiological psycho forces, mm -hmm. and they haven't really been able to find that friendship and, and, and a different way of mm -hmm. building for the future. They hang in for a while, and then finally mm -hmm. they give up right about that time. Mm -hmm. Then there's the next big cyclical period, which is... You know, people call it midlife crisis, but really, you know, it happens in, in usually in the 50s um, when people start thinking about aging, losing capacities, um, wondering if they're ever going to have sexual excitement again. Is this all there is? And we find people going seriously off the rails then for both good and bad reasons. Uh, but again, nature is nature's stepping in again there, um, and it's with the diminution of, of capacities that that happens. Mm -hmm. So... We don't assume that a divorce is what needs to happen. That's another difference between a collaborative lawyer's office and a... And in fact, you've had people walk out and decide to work on their marriages. Absolutely. Yeah. More of those than ever in my career as a litigator. Mm -hmm. And it's because we're not rushing to file divorce papers. We're starting with conversations about what's really going on here. And in some cases, there are situational factors going on that we can help with. Um, people can learn to have conversations during the coaching process that allow them to talk about things that can be dealt with. And often one of the things that they haven't been able to talk about all these years is money. Um, my therapist colleagues tell me that that's the real dirty secret in, in most collapsing marriages, not sex, but money. And sometimes the very first honest conversation that people have about money is in the office of the collaborative financial neutral. We can help people restructure, and I've done some, some post-nuptial agreements that are really financial restructurings. Sometimes people have come to me with a really bad prenup that they've limped along with for 15 or 20 years that should never have been signed in the first place, that really creates a, 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 a vassal out of the disadvantaged spouse. And those are not good marriages, and we can restructure those sometimes. So... 
when you look at where um, the collaborative law movement more broadly is in relationship to collaborative divorce, because obviously what you're describing here has much wider implications for how law is practiced. Is the are there other areas other than divorce where collaborative law is taking off, or is this the principal area where it's taking off? This is the first area that's been self-propelled. Um, in other words, when this idea first came up, divorce lawyers everywhere said, oh, at last, we've got to do this. This is obvious, as you said, a no-brainer. Um, the forces are not quite so self-propelling in other areas, but there are a lot of lawyers working on what, has, what can be the same and what has to be different once we get out of a family in which it's obvious that we've got to raise these children. Any caring parents, given the opportunity of a constructive divorce where they can parent children, they're going to take it unless they're seriously dysfunctional. The other areas where we think it's going to take off, the most logical one would be probate litigation. That's another family fight if it gets into the wrong hands, that could, we think, become a constructive conversation with the right team resources available. The forces are pretty intense once a parent has died, and so we sometimes try to roll it back and do succession planning beforehand, and we can use collaborative tools for that, too. Um, but, but why not corporate law? It would seem to me that there would be lots of situations, and I imagine this happens all the time, actually, where two corporations with a big difference would be far better served by negotiating than by... Um, and So I'm just wondering, how does that work? I mean, I don't, don't they negotiate already? They do, and I don't want to get into stuff that's technical and boring in right. my answer, but um, mostly businesses solve their problems without litigating mm. um, because mostly there are continuing interests involved that are more important than the immediate dispute. Right. And so often those kinds of disputes don't ever land in a lawyer's okay. office. The problem is that when they do land in the lawyer's office, the, um, the legal industrial money Complex. machine starts right. Right. churning. Um, larger businesses and corporations go to large law firms. It takes a lot of money to keep a large law firm running, and the litigation department is one mm -hmm. of the sources. Right. Um, of the funds that keep the firm rolling. So litigation departments in large law firms are, to say that they're not interested in collaborative law would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. But who is interested in it are lawyers in smaller law firms, like my own partner who's here today, um, who represents small professional practices, small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses in San Francisco, Marin, and Sonoma County, those businesses often are family businesses, for one thing. Even if they're not, um, let's take a, a dental practice or a, an accountancy firm. Those partners belong to the Rotary Club together. They belong to the same clubs. Their kids go to school together. There are obvious incentives here for keeping it out of the court system so that you don't have your dirty laundry washed in ways that everybody can look at, containing costs, and keeping the conversation civilized. So... In many ways, that, I think, is the most fertile ground because those kinds of partnership breakups, the way that I'm, I'm conceptualizing it at this point, I've done a lot of thinking about this, and 
what the distinction is between commercial matters that seem well-suited to collaboration and those that are less well-suited. In my mind, it has to do with whether the precipitating event that led to the dispute that's causing the problem was a fundamentally human event or a fundamentally financial event. So, for example, let's talk about the accountancy firm that's breaking up. We've had cases go through our firm in which the precipitating event was a contention that somebody sexually harassed somebody. That's a quintessentially human experience. And treating it through the litigation mill isn't going to resolve and the feelings and the forces. Company. And yeah. it could bankrupt yeah. the company yeah. and destroy the firm. Yeah. Everybody has an interest there in having a conversation that's about what really happened and mm -hmm. having the human conversation that's propelling either dis the dispute or the solution to this. Well, it would seem to me, and I don't want to have this conversation, that the general counsel of large corporations would have an interest in collaborative uh, dispute resolution because they're the people who assign the cases to different law firms. And one would think that they would at least like the option of not spending a, a, you know, a ton of money on, uh, on a litigious process and yes. have some people whose focus was to see if this could be resolved, even if there were no personal dimension in it at all. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And re really, not to be too cynical about it, but really the problem that we're struggling with in, in trying to think about how to get to critical mass right. there is the large law firm litigation departments are standing squarely in the way of that. Right. They have existing relationships with the general counsel in large firms who assign out the litigation right. work. And that's a strong commercial interest. Yeah. So we do not find those people saying nice things about how wonderful it would be to resolve things outside court. Also, even for those who might find it interesting, we have this disqualification provision when we do collaborative law. So if... A law two lawyers from large litigation firms agreed to handle a matter collaboratively and couldn't get to a solution. Then they couldn't represent them. They could them not represent them in the litigation, <clears throat> right. and they might lose that client permanently. Yeah. So the financial disincentives in that environment are substantial. So it's the small boutique-sized law firms that are going to succeed in making that leap. But mm. they need to find ways around the big firms that have long-standing relationships with, with large businesses. So where is the collaborative law movement and collaborative divorce specifically in the sociology of American law today? Uh, is it at 0.001%? Is it at 1% or 2%? How, how, how big is the minnow in relation to the whale? I think the minnow's growing up. I think that we've got maybe a salmon right okay. now, maybe a king salmon, Okay. Um, uh, growing. Mm -hmm. um, some events have happened in recent years that have really pushed that ball forward, or fed the fish. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that happened is that uh, you probably haven't been thrilled when you heard about it, but you've heard about the Uniform Commercial Code, for example. Mm -hmm. Not the most thrilling reading you'll ever do, but that's an example of a uniform law. Um, it was, it was developed by a group of lawyers, the Uniform Law Commission, and they did it because it was important for business that, that the laws be the same in all of the states. Well, a Uniform Collaborative Law Act was promulgated and adopted by the Uniform by the Commission on Uniform Laws. That happened about a year and a half ago. Wow, that's a big deal. It's a huge big deal. And the process 
of getting to a uniform law is a highly, you could call it highly political, but it's also a highly democratic process in which every conceivable viewpoint gets brought to the table because those commissioners really want this law to be one that state legislatures will adopt. So they need to anticipate all of the opposition and address those concerns in the drafting. And they did so, and they did a great job. How many states have adopted it? Mm, I think maybe four, maybe five so But it's far. growing. But it will grow. Um, it, it, it's going to gradually spread. And California actually hasn't yet adopted the uniform law, but we have our own statute that was adopted maybe five years ago. Texas had the first one. So How many were, states have collaborative law statutes, roughly? I have a friend in the audience who can shake her head if I've got it wrong, but I think it's probably around eight uh -huh. now. So it's, it's moving. So it's moving. Yeah. Um, the uniform collaborative statute went to the American Bar Association. Is it a good statute, the It's uniform a great statute. Okay. It's a really good statute. It's not perfect because mm -hmm. um, interests had to be attended to that I didn't really think needed to be attended mm -hmm. to in quite that way, but they were, and so I think that it's got a good chance. And what it does is provide a uniform foundation on which states can then do whatever slight changes they want. So what is your vision for the Integrative Law Institute? What do you hope to accomplish in the next five or ten years? I'm very excited about that. You know, I told you about um, all of the discoveries that happened the day after I started practicing collaborative law and my colleagues did, which is when we really started to learn the craft. That work, in order to do it well, to, to go up that Maslow hierarchy to the higher level human needs, it's such inherently integrative work. And as the uniform law was being um, considered, there were many efforts to say that, that, that collaborative, I'm getting to your point, but it's a circuitous route, that collaborative law was so risky and different that there had to be all kinds of special warnings that collaborative lawyers would give to their clients before they could sign on to this new risky thing. And the voices of reason in that process took the point of view of, you think this is risky? How about if we make regular lawyers who aren't doing collaborative law explain the risks to their clients of doing it the traditional way? And that actually was the viewpoint that prevailed. It's that perspective that's led me to understand that, that those things that we're doing at the collaborative table, every lawyer needs to know. Because any time that you have one of these disputes, wherever it appears, in probate, in commercial litigation, in a partnership dissolution, where the fundamental event that happened was a human dis relationship disruption, whether it's between two people in two different businesses who are accustomed to doing work together and a miscommunication happened and one of them thinks that the other cheated, that's a fundamentally human disruption. When you've got those kinds of things fueling a dispute wherever it lands legally, then that is going to continue to fuel the relations between those people, regardless of what a court could do to resolve it. So that's the ground in which lawyers need to know what collaborative lawyers are already learning, need to understand about what happens to the thinking capacities of human beings when they're angry, for example. I had mentioned the vanishing trial. That's true not only in divorce, but in civil and commercial litigation as well. There are a lot of factors that have led to this, but well over 90% of everything that gets filed as a lawsuit will end in a settlement agreement. 
And the only question is, how far down the road, how close to the courthouse, how close to the trial, and how much grief and money before you get to the settlement discussion. So that's true in the commercial realm as well. And if we at ILLY can help lawyers to understand that they aren't doing trials. Only 5 or 10% of any of the things that are filed will ever go to trial. What they are is conflict resolution specialists, but they don't yet know how to do the job right. It's not being taught yet in law schools properly, at all really. And it's certainly not being taught on the job in large law firms, which is where lawyers learn how to practice law. We come out of law school knowing nothing. We don't know where the courthouse is. We don't know how to draft a piece of legal paper. All we know is how to read cases and construe them. So all of that learning happens on the job. And what I want to do with Illy is jump into the continuing education field with practicing lawyers. About 35 states now have a requirement that lawyers need to take continuing education courses every year. And most of it is so deadly boring that... I think lawyers literally do fall asleep and hit their heads on their desks um, watching on, the, on their, their computer monitors or listening to recorded programs. It's one of the things that drives us to go in person to these events because then at least we're embarrassed if we fall asleep and somebody nudges us. But you know, the, the market for really interesting, useful courses about how do you really work with the humans in your office who are angry and frightened and can't think straight and can't communicate, what's the job description if you really want to help them arrive at a settlement that's going to resolve something that isn't just going to be a piece of paper that the lawyers brokered, but that really arises out of a conversation in which everything of concern was discussed. And everybody can see this is the best it's going to get. It's not going to get better than this. That's every lawyer's job, and that's what Illy's job is. Pauline Tesla, thank you for being with us at the New School. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> Questions? Yes, Susan. So as you were talking about um, next terrains and next frontiers for this, one of the things that came to my mind early was medical malpractice. And yes. I wonder if there is any progress towards collaborative practice with medical malpractice, which is enormously expensive in so many ways in our society? Good question, and in fact, that's one of the areas where most progress has been made. Um, particularly some lawyers in Texas have been working really hard on that, and some lawyers now in Ireland are working on that. This is a worldwide movement. Um, what happens when the, the risk management people, when there's a medical malpractice event, they call it, they call it the event, they don't call it Anything. They call it the event, when the, when the unfortunate event happens. In a, in, in a hospital or a medical practice, it's a question that then immediately gets referred to the insurance carrier, which refers it to their lawyers, who are the risk management professionals. Their job description in a conventional mode is to instruct everybody who had anything to do with the event to circle the wagons. Talk to nobody, say nothing. Just send them to the lawyers. Well. The Veterans Administration did a really fascinating study about 15 years ago. It's an amazing study. They have a lot of 
pair hospitals that they can easily match up and pair to do controlled studies. So they decided that they were going to do an experiment because what they knew was that those risk management instructions ran against the natural instincts of anybody who is in a healing profession and who feels horrible if some mistake of theirs might have harmed somebody when their job is to heal. So the natural instinct is to apologize, to say, how can I help, to give a hug. And the risk management model says, don't you dare. Don't you dare talk to them. It will be used against you in court. So the VA did paired hospitals, Group A and Group B. Group A was traditional risk management treatment of the medical malpractice events. Hospitals in Group B, the instructions to the, to the medical staff and, and nurses and all of the healthcare people was, if an unfortunate event happens, do whatever you think is right. So they were free to apologize, to give hugs, to say, what can I do? And then, it being the VA, they compared the bottom line. They wanted to see in the end, when they figured out all of the costs of litigating, plus how much money changed hands at the end, which was cheaper for them. And I wouldn't be telling you the story if it weren't that the group in which people were free to have the human connection that repairs the breach, people don't want lawsuits. They might need some compensation. They don't want to sue the doctor that they loved and trusted. So that was the foundation from which trying to find ways to deliver a collaborative model in which you could negotiate a solution and in which apology and forgiveness are part of the, part of the description. Thank you. Yes, Is Amy. there a, a difference between collaborative law, what you're talking about, and mediation that these ex-judges, I mean, are retired judges? <clears throat> There's a huge difference. Is there? That's a great question. It's a great question, and often my clients come in saying, this is just like mediation, isn't it? And I say, not really, and we have a long conversation about this. The, the beginning of this conversation that differentiates collaborative law from mediation is that... Um, there's a famous footnote in an article written by a mediator from around here named Joan Kelly. She did a footnote that's about three pages long in which she just listed all of the different ways of delivering conflict resolution services that go under the one name mediation. So what she made as her point is anything that you say about mediation is not true even before you finish your sentence because it can't possibly apply to all of those many different things that are called mediation. What you described that retired judges do, we in the trade call it muscle mediation because what it is is just using the same power-based tools that a judge doing a judicial settlement conference would do up at the courthouse, except they do it privately and you pay them for it rather than it being done at the courthouse and your tax money pays for it. But it's coercing people. It's saying, if you take this to trial, you're going to lose. That's how they do it. Mediation, as it's practiced by some of the people that I think you probably know, Gary Friedman mm -hmm. and um, Bob Mnookin, right. is not that model. The model that people got excited about in the family law field and more broadly now is called client-centered, interest-based negotiations. Um, it's a big mouthful. You might have heard about a book called Getting to Yes mm -hmm. that was written by Fisher and Urey at the Harvard Negotiation Project. But that, that was the granddaddy of the interest-based negotiation movement. And what it was about was, shouldn't we really be having a conversation in which the job of the mediator is to hear what people's stories are 
and for the disputing parties to hear one another's story and to be facilitated in a way that they can really hear the story so that then they can have a conversation about what it would take to make it right. So that's the kind of mediation that often happens around here when it's not done by private retired private judges. Not always, but, but usually. Court-annexed mediation is that kind that's done um, using power-based tools, and we're not very interested in that. The problem with what I call the good kind of mediation, the, the interest-based mediation, is that it places a, a premium on speed and efficiency, number one. And number two, unless there are lawyers in the room, most often it takes place only with you and you, if you're the disputing parties. There are two of you at the table, and there's a neutral mediator. And if the two of you aren't very emotionally intelligent, or if one of you isn't, if one of you's got um, strong denial defenses and wants to stonewall and wants to delay and not follow through, or if one of you happens to be a bit histrionic and likes to just let it rip, a mediator doesn't have very many tools to bring to bear on that. Because if a mediator is perceived by, Susan, I hope isn't objecting to what I'm saying, we have a, a very skillful mediator in the room, at least one, um, the mediator has to retain the perception of neutrality. And if either party feels, justifiably or not, that the mediator is either taking too much care of the other, or is being too critical, or um, is in any way not being entirely neutral, imagine how difficult it would be to maintain a perception on the part of really upset people and to manage those strong emotions that's not easy. In addition, a mediator has no ability to work with the more difficult of the parties outside the room. So that, um, let's say somebody is given homework by the mediator to bring in a lot of documents to the next mediation session, and they just don't bring them. What's a mediator to do? There's really not much. Collaborative law really grew initially, in part, out of the perceived problems with mediation, except with the highest functioning 5 or 10% of people who have problems. How do we deal with that big part of the bell-shaped curve that's most people who aren't the easiest people, they aren't the hardest people, they may have good days, they may have bad days, they may cooperate sometimes and not others? Collaborative practice is great. It brings many more resources into the room for the negotiating sessions. But even more important, if I'm a collaborative lawyer and I'm representing a client who is not getting with the program, is not sticking with those high-intention commitments that we make at the beginning. My job is not to go in and trumpet the dysfunctional attitudes of my client. My job, and we work it out right from the start, my job is to sit down with my client and say, you know, this isn't getting us very far. What's the point of spending your money going into another meeting where you haven't brought what we all know you have to bring in order to go forward? What do you think we should do next? So it's my job to not come into a collaborative session unless I know that my client is in good faith and is ready to work on constructive solutions. And that's such a difference from what, what, what even the best mediators are able to accomplish with people who may be difficult now and then, which is to say all of us now and then. You, you actually have a beautiful chart in the book about all the differences between mediation and, and uh, 
collaborative uh, a practice, which is very informative uh, to Mimi's question on this. Uh, just all the different resources. It's very helpful. And I would like to add another thing, which we haven't mentioned, which is about the children. Um, most mediators, even the really good divorce mediators, see their job as getting to that piece of paper as efficiently and quickly as they can. Who's left out of this picture? Imagine a 15-year-old kid whose parents suddenly decide to get divorced. Does that person have anything to say about the subject? You bet. There hasn't been any model until the collaborative team model that found a built-in, normalized way to give a voice of that child, to that child, from that child. There's research that's established that those parents who do the best job of talking with their children about what a divorce is and what it means for the children, the ones who do the most and the best spend an average of about 15 minutes total during the whole divorce explaining what's happening to their kids. And you have a wonderful, so tragic set of quotes from the Yale Child Study Center about divorce. What is divorce? Quote, divorce is when mom and dad hate each other and your family is dead. That's a 3.4-year-old. Quote, it's when somebody signs a paper, someone leaves home, and then kids cry. That's a five-year-old. Breaks your heart. Uh, what do you know about lawyers? The big problem with lawyers is that they don't help mom and dad stay friends, but they take your money. I'll never like them. Uh, I talked to one once, and I thought she listened, but she took care of the money, not me. And then what suggestions would you give to lawyers and judges? Keep that gray tape for people's mouths in the court hall so they don't say stuff that hurts people's feelings. Or don't scare people about not seeing each other anymore. It's too scary to think you can't see your mom or dad anymore. God decides that, not people. It's amazing stuff. It just makes yeah. you weep. Yeah, yeah. I, I um, heard a presentation by the people who ran that study at the Yale Child Study Center. And they brought drawings that they had had the children do while they yeah. were talking, while they were saying those things yeah. that got quoted. They projected them up on a screen. They had children draw a picture of, of what they thought a, a, a trial was. And it was the picture that I remember seeing was of this Dracula-like figure of a judge in a black cloak with fangs leaning over a table and threatening a very small set of parents. And then another one was, what happens to families when parents divorce? The picture was of a bomber dropping bombs on a house and it breaking apart. And this was a, an audience of pretty tough family lawyers, and there were tears throughout the room. That was when I first introduced yeah. collaborative yeah. practice. Eric. Uh, I just want to encourage everybody in the room, if they haven't yet, to see a movie called The Separation, which is uh, an, an Iranian film, uh, very much about what happens in families when mm -hmm. mommy and daddy decide to, to change course in life. Mm -hmm. uh, very powerful, very resonant. Uh, but it also brings to mind, um, because that's a Muslim society predominantly, which it's happening, if you would address the issue a little bit about um, marriage in general, historically, is, is a relatively new concept you know, in, in the history of, of, of culture, uh, even uh, you know, as, as recently as the 19th century. Uh, many working class people did not get married. They had families and they lived their family lives. Uh, the church has an enormous impact upon people getting married, sacraments, all of that. 
Do you see, as somebody who's never been married and who doesn't have his own children, do you see the idea of alternatives to, to marriage at all emerging? Well, one thing that I'm, you're a little bit out of my area of expertise, but one thing that I find very interesting is the notion that rises and falls every now and then, but it seems to be on the rise again, of contractual marriage, which I think actually might meet the needs. Uh, what, what's meant by contractual marriage is that you don't marry till death do us part. You marry for a specified period of time, um, and then you can renew it or not renew it. Well, given the demographic data, that might be a better fit, really, um, given that 50% or more, 50% of those who marry and a lot more of those who don't, do decide to part ways. It might be that there would be more stability for kids that would result from that because it might encourage more marriages and we wouldn't have such chaos about property and support at that point. Uh, let me follow up on Eric's question with, uh, uh, with a question I wanted to ask, which is, given that more and more people choose not to marry, um, what are the implications for people living in those situations, both legally and from a collaborative point of view, uh, when they choose to separate? What, how does their legal situation differ from the situation in marriage, and what are the collaborative issues that you face, if you face them, with uh, non-married partners? That's a very interesting question, and I'd like to see a lot more attention given to it. Um, under California law, and either most or all states have the same law now, um, there is no distinction legally for children who are born from marriages or from non-marital relationships. There's no more concept of illegitimacy anywhere in the law. And the, um, there is something called the Uniform Parentage Act, which allows people to come into court and establish legally, if they haven't established consensually, who the parents are of a child. And ch children have a right to child support exactly the same as if their parents married. There's no difference in the child support laws that apply. The big differences, and this is an interesting area that I haven't really seen any writing and thinking about, the difference is in the position of women, because what changes for, I mean, granted that we have a gender-neutral custody laws now in California and in many, but not all other states. We don't have a tender age presumption anymore. It used to be the presumption that if a couple divorced and the child was quite young, it would always go with mom. But now we try to make sure that, uh, that, that both parents spend time with the baby. But usually somebody is more of a primary stay-at-home parent. Not always, but usually. And it's not really politically popular to say so, but it's a lot more often the woman than it is the man. And it's not popular to say so, but women, even when they're working, don't make as much as men do. At even the highest levels, we've got a lot of pay discrimination. So we have women economically disadvantaged at the get-go, having children, tending to be the one who stays at home more, goes to the pediatrician more, is the primary parent more. And what we don't have in the legal structure for non-marital relationships is any provision for the support of people who are providing the parenting. That's the huge difference. 
between being married and not being married. I have this discussion with my daughter now. She's 24 years old, and she says she'll never get married. What's the point? Well, she's not ready for me to explain to her how much this can come back and bite her, but I'd love it if she could have a contractual marriage if she decides to have a kid and get married for five or six years and be supported by the working parent if she's the one who stays at home and raises the child and also have some property rights about what gets, gets accumulated. Right now, in a non-marital relationship, people buy things together, they give one another things, and the law is a hodgepodge. There's no uniform set of principles whatsoever that apply to the division of stuff. Well, I think that we're seeing so many kids not wanting to marry because of what we talked about, about those rotten divorces that their parents went through where nobody was raising the kids. Why would they ever want to replicate that? So we're seeing this aversion to marriage. Maybe contract marriage is a way to resolve a lot of these issues. Yes. Are there a, is there a common law marriage provision? Not in California. A lot of people think that they're going to have common law marriages, and they're very surprised to find that it doesn't exist here. Some states it does. Yes, Jan. I have a question about the tools that you referred to several times in, in your talk um, at, a, at a kind of conceptual level. And I wonder, what are the tools that you're creating? Are they different than conflict resolution tools in, in other fields? Or, or just in the field of conflict resolution, for example, that people can go and study for that. What are these? What are the tools that you use and that you can teach lawyers, for example, in the continuing education class? Just, I'll just add that I found myself completely trusting that if I were the client who who wasn't showing up with her papers, and you sat down with me and explained to me why we couldn't go, I, I realized I, I would shape up. I trust, would. You, I trust you to manage that. <laughs> but but I, I have the sense that you know how to, how to manage that. But, but there are a lot of skills that go into being able to facilitate that situation That's right. with, with a client. And, and I'm just wondering, can, can, are, these, can there, are there tools that can be developed? Are, are you developing them, and what are they like? There are tools, and I and the other people who have, have built the collaborative movement have been discovering on the job what they are. But nobody's really done any serious writing about this. Um, my book for lawyers has what I happened to discover were tools that worked for me, and that's what I teach. I've been teaching lawyers for 15 or 20 years now. Everything that I've discovered that seems to work, and because I have that kind of integrative mind, and I'm always looking at what I can learn from neurobiology and positive psychology and cognitive and behavioral sciences and anywhere that I can find anything, I, I try to bring it in, mindfulness practices. That's what I'm trying to, that's what I have been able to teach lawyers as collaborative lawyers and that's really what ILLI, the Integrative Law Institute, is doing, is finding ways I think of myself almost like a funnel. I'm, I'm bringing in whole areas of experience that lawyers don't think are part of their responsibility to know about, and I'm translating it into concrete tools that they can apply on Monday morning. But your, your question is a really interesting and sophisticated one because, in fact, a few tools here and there aren't nearly sufficient. But what that does is give people who try them a taste for doing it differently. And once you have that illuminating moment where you try something entirely different and something different happens, that creates that kind of fire in the belly 
to change how you do the work, and that's really what I'm up to. And somewhere along the line, surely there comes a, a kind of a transition where something becomes not just an individual discovery or small group discovery and fires in the valley, but it becomes the standard of practice. That's what's happening in the collaborative movement. We've got an international organization, the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, and we have a statewide organization called Collaborative Practice California. We have annual meetings that are, that are very well attended because they're a lot of fun. They're not, they're, there's not a boring moment in them. And we have presentations from neuroscientists and from specialists in the apology and forgiveness movement. And people like myself have workshops in which we take the knowledge that's coming from everywhere and translate it into practice. We have experiential exercises. And so in the collaborative practice movement, We've been at it now for 15 or 20 years, and we do have a wealth of knowledge that's starting to become normative for doing the work. In my view, the collaborative movement is the vanguard of a change that's happening in the whole legal profession, except it doesn't know it yet. Um, I was introduced at a conference once um, to some very traditional litigators by a man who was the president of this organization that I belong to that is very traditional family lawyers. He had just become president. He was from Northern California. He introduced me and he said that he had brought me to speak because even though he's a dinosaur and he'll never learn how to do it any differently, he can see the future when it looks him in the eye. And this is the future. Mm. Tom Silk, as an attorney and somebody who has reflected on many of these matters for a long time, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts about this work. Well, I should uh, uh, disclose here, I mentioned my connection with Michael and Commonweal, um, but I am also in the middle of a divorce, a collaborative divorce, and my lawyer is Pauline. <laughs> um, and I'm very pleased. Um, I just found myself thinking about, um, you know, all the places where disputes, where emotions are high. Um, and... Uh, uh, malpractice is certainly one, but I, I, I was busy last night reading the current issue of uh, Bloomberg's Business Week. Uh, the big cover is a quote by Steve Jobs um, going on and on with, the, with as much fury as he could muster about the thermonuclear war he was going to conduct against Google for stealing stuff. And the fury that's there um, that's fueled by unlimited money of these high-tech companies to fight over intellectual property is, you know, it's a field that's untouched yet by, um, uh, by calming influences. <laughs> um, uh, the notion of, uh, of settling, of resolving without victory is, is, is not yet uh, uh, discussed, I think. But uh, uh, back to reality, uh, from my head to my heart, um, the process of, of being being a person involved as a, as an actor as a uh, person involved in collaborative divorce it's uh, it's really been wonderful for us. Uh, I think we both agree that uh, um, the it's a process that allows us to be as good as we can be <laughs> toward each other. <laughs> It really encourages us to do that. And that's, um, that's where we are, although we, we both decided that we can't continue the marriage. Um, but uh, 
uh, we're sure wanting to find a way to, to the best way to resolve it and uh, uh, being aware of all the minefields along the way. We, this is not our first marriage either of us. We're both the same age essentially. Our kids are grown. Uh, so it's just us. Uh, we want to do it right. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, I highly recommend it. Thank you. <laughs> Michael Rafferty. I, I was wondering about uh, a fee structure time comparisons between the two methods. I realize that uh, there's a lot more involved in collaboration. Um, does it cost a lot more? No, it doesn't. Okay. Of course, I have to ask you more than what. Yeah, <laughs> more, more than conventional. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it used to be that when a client would come in and ask me that question, I would immediately respond as I did, that it costs a lot less. And I didn't stop to ask the question, compared to what? Um, and f most people come to me never having had a divorce before and never having worked with lawyers before. So they're in for a big shock. No matter how we do it, nobody can really afford to pay what lawyers have to charge these days. Um, and I won't go there at the moment, but it's expensive. Having said that, um, what we know from experience and what's now been confirmed by some data gathering at, at our organization, IACP, is that, well, of course, in any given case, we don't know what would happen to those people if they litigated, because they're not litigating. But we get a sense of similarities in terms of temperaments and issues. And uniformly, we've been estimating that it costs about a quarter to a fifth as much to do it this way than for some reasonably, reasonably amenable people to do it the other way. I'm not talking about the really high conflict 5% for those people. It doesn't matter who you are, it's going to be expensive and collaboration doesn't work that well for them. Lynn. But having oh, said that, I don't talk that way anymore with clients because they don't have a reference point. Anything that they have to pay is more than they really have a budget for, for most mm -hmm. people. So instead, I talk about what's really much truer about collaborative practice, even though it is cheaper significantly. You'll never know that unless you've got a reference point. What's really true is that we're going for quality durability. We're going for deep resolution. So no matter what you choose, you're going to get a settlement agreement. But do you want also to have the kind of value-added services that will mean that your children can get really good parenting and that you can look back with integrity, blah, blah, blah? Mm -hmm. I just want to add one Not point uh, for, for process junkies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of fun, <laughs> which is to say that, that all, the, all the pros involved, the lawyers and the therapists and the financial people, are, are, are aware that at any time, a client can bust out and go to court, hire a lawyer and go to court and declare war. There's nothing restraining the client from doing that. And so it's all consensual. So you've got to be checking the temperature of everyone all the time to make sure that people are buying into the process. Because if they aren't, it's over. And so it's, 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 it's such an alive creature. It's, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. I really enjoy it. I feel as I am a process junkie, and it, 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 it's a marvel to me mm -hmm. how much we have to learn in order to do this work well, mm -hmm. and it never stops. Yeah. Lynn. 
can you speak a little bit about the law schools that have are teaching collaborative law and how it's been integrated into the curriculum when the traditional curriculum is so adversarial? I'm afraid that's a short story. <laughs> it really, it's unfortunate. Um, law schools recognize that they're not teaching what they have to. But what they've done about it so far is slim to none. Um, some law schools have what they call alternate dispute resolution courses. It's usually one semester long. Um, and in that course, people are taught something about interest-based negotiations, mediation. They're also taught about arbitration, which really is just court, but without the apparatus. And now, increasingly, they'll have a little unit on collaborative practice. Well, that's one semester. And they're just giving people, really, they're letting them know that these things exist is about all they're doing. Some law schools have courses in negotiations. Um, but that can cover anything from the kind of muscle power negotiations to interest-based work. There have been a couple of law schools that have experimented with courses, semester-long courses in collaborative practice. But I, could, I, I, don't, I couldn't even fill the fingers of one hand with naming them. So it's yet to happen, and that's part of Illy's agenda. Um, what our intention is, is to bring young law faculty out here to Bolinas in a beautiful environment, and we're working on a curriculum for integrative law practice and it will include collaboration. But mainly it has to do with the transformation of the lawyers themselves into people who really know how to help solve problems. And so we're going to expose them to that curriculum and send them back to their law schools with a curriculum that they can teach. We're hopeful. If we look at the, uh, the cultural landscape of alternative slash integrative law, um, I think we had this conversation. I, I know I had it with Charlie Halpern, uh, our colleague who um, has a, pro a project on contemplative law at Bolt Hall Law School. Um, but so there's there's the mediation world that you've described. There's the collaborative law world that you've described. There is Charlie's. I'm not sure it's the only one, but a, a successful course on contemplative practice in the law at Bolt Hall then isn't there a group called something like Renaissance Lawyers or something like that? Somebody sort mentioned, of. What is it called? There's a wonderful woman whose name is Kim Wright, mm -hmm. who for years has been traveling a path similar to mine in the sense that it's bringing her to the point mm -hmm. of interest in integrative law. And her first manifestation on a large scale was a website called the Renaissance Lawyer. Okay. Um, since then, she's abandoned that label and is now running a website called Cutting Edge Law. And that really is a platform for people who are already working in all of these different vectors. Charlie Halperin, for example, has a, a little blog post there about contemplative law. Um, there's restorative justice, which we haven't even talked about, which is a fascinating vector. These are all vectors of integrative law. There isn't anywhere a program that teaches all of those vectors in a comprehensible way, um, in a, any systematic way, to lawyers in a way that can teach them practical skills they can take home. But the Cutting Edge Law website, I think of it as a place for the gathering of the clan. Those who already are doing vectors of integrative law, that's the place where they can become self-aware and talk to one another. 
But what they're not doing is a systematic way of bringing integrative law in all of its vectors in a practical way to lawyers and law students. Would you speak a little bit about the international receptivity to all the vectors in other cultures? Is Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. Well, starting with collaborative law, yeah. um, it's really been an amazing story. One law professor who was not exactly a fan of it wrote about five or six years into the existence of the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals. He wrote that this had taken over the family law field with astonishing speed because, of course, the legal profession is a very slow profession to change, very conservative. So let me tell you the story of IACP, and that will give you an answer to the question about receptivity in other cultures. IACP, or the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals, began as a lunch group in Emeryville. It was, I think, 10 of us from Bay Area counties who, this was in the late 1990s, collaborative law was just getting established. The Bay Area is the mothership for integrated team collaborative practice. And we decided we would have lunch once a month and talk about how we could get this idea of team practice more visible in the Bay Area. That was our agenda. That was maybe 1998. 1999, we decided that we would create a nonprofit organization. And you know how the first thing you do is spend a couple of weeks on the name. So we struggled about the name and came up with something like the California Academy of Collaborative Professionals, because we were thinking really big, beyond the Bay Area, maybe all of California. So one of us volunteered to do the nonprofit paperwork, and that takes about a year and a half. And before a few months had gone on, there was a meeting in Chicago at which collaborative lawyers and other professionals from all over the country and Canada showed up. Well, we had already done a name change in the, in the IRS nonprofit approval process. We had changed it from California to American, and it was now the American Academy of Collaborative Professionals. We couldn't complete the paperwork fast enough. We had to be the International Academy of Collaborative Professionals because we now had Canadians. And then, as I started getting involved in teaching and training, I got invited to go to England, and I started doing training there. They were like hungry sponges. They just couldn't get enough. They brought me back for four years running and had me do three, four, five trainings while I was over there, all over the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Ireland. So within three or four years, I had trained about 900 people in the UK, and they had now an organization that had taken over doing training there, and they've got thousands of lawyers now who are doing it there. So IACP incorporated under that name in 1999 or 2000, and we had our first gathering in Oakland in 2001, about a week after the World Trade Center was bombed. You can imagine that not that many people wanted to get on planes, but we still had 100 people show up from all over North America. It's now 2012, that's 12 years later, and we have 24 countries that are member organizations of IACP. So this is an idea that people just have been waiting for. In, in the legal profession, everybody recognizes that this is where it's going, that this is how it's going to be. Fascinating. Yeah. Peter, you've been listening to this, witnessing this for a long time. Any reflections on what the experience of watching Pauline 
bring this into being has been like for you and any observations on it? Well, she's um, actually been more modest than she should have been. This uh, IACP really started at our kitchen table. <laughs> uh, I can remember the group, about four or five people sitting there saying, we should have an organization. I'm thinking, these people are crazy. <laughs> I practiced uh, you know, litigation for a long time. And, uh, seeing this uh, new way of practicing law is just it's a miracle, really. It's amazing. Thank you. I'm very pleased about it. Any last thoughts, Pauline? Anything you haven't said that you'd like to say about this extraordinary body of work? I think lawyers are hungry for it. There's nobody who does traditional legal work for very long who feels very satisfied about it, with, with few exceptions. Satisfied, I mean, in, in this kind of deep human personal values way. Appellate lawyers that I've known are happy, but they don't have to deal with the people who are having the actual problems. It's a very intellectual practice. Other than that, when lawyers really understand the potentialities of bringing their whole human selves into the work, it's, there's a sense of release. And often when I present introductory trainings to lawyers who haven't been presented with permission to bring their whole selves into the room, there's always somebody who comes up afterward crying, saying, I was going to leave the practice of law, but now I don't have to. So. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Oh, yeah. A quote, as I always yeah. do. There's a book um, Deepak Chopra wrote uh, with other people, The Shadow Effect. And in the very beginning, he said, higher consciousness is the answer, the only lasting answer to the dark side of human nature. That's not the problem. The problem is applying it. Yeah. And that's what I think you're saying. This is how to apply it. Yeah. Well, what a joy. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you, Michael. <laughs>